even though I believe that I am the first non-white mayor of any large Canadian city, nobody even cared about the color of my skin. The only thing they cared about was my faith. And I had a choice to make at that point, which is, do I just wave this off because my faith was never really a big deal at all during the election? The Calgarians didn't care about it, but every, they cared about what I thought about public transit. But, you know, everyone else seems to care about my faith. So what do I do? And even then, even 11 years ago, I felt that there were these rising waves of intolerance. And it was time to start fighting them. So I said, why not take advantage of this? And why not actually start using this to tell a story of a place where pluralism really works and hope that we can influence people's thinking across the country and around the world? Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. My name is Scott Schmidt. I'm here alongside my co-host, Jeremy Appel. Jeremy, how's it going today? Doing pretty good. I um, have uh, have some some work in the uh, in the pipeline, so to speak. I think I may have said that I last week. I think that's week. like literally. We should just you just repeat that every single week. Journalism in the pipeline. It's like the most <laughs> Alberta statement I've ever heard. You should get. You should just get a soundboard of me. <laughs> well, it's okay because we're not talking too much to each other today, right? Because we're gonna get right on with the show. But we should mention before we get going that we are members of the Harbinger Media Network. And uh, you should check out some other podcasts like this one, such as Big Shiny Takes. Never uh, heard of it. Never heard of it. Uh, Alberta Advantage. And uh, give them one more, Jeremy. Off Court. Off Court. Okay. All good. All good. You should, you should check all those out. So listen, we don't want to mess around here today because we have an extremely uh, great show planned for you guys today. Uh, and what's up? Well, I was just going to say it's perhaps our first guest that needs no introduction, but we're going to give him one anyways. <laughs> well, that's true. Definitely the most well-known guest that we've ever had. And we, before we even started recording, we started to our, put ourselves behind the eight ball. So we're going to try to uh, fix that with a good interview here today. But on with the show. He is the current three-term mayor of the city of Calgary, but unless he's using this show to reveal a drawn-out April Fool's joke, there will not be a fourth. Only two other mayors in Calgary's history have held the position longer than Nahed Nenshi, but none have the name or the fame that he has carved out for himself. He rode a purple wave to two in 2010 to becoming the first Muslim mayor of a Canadian, major Canadian city. He was once a Stephen Harper away from being the most important person in Canada, and he's even been named the world's mayor along the way. He's made friends, he's made enemies, and in a few months he will walk away. The Forgotten Corner is extremely pleased to welcome Mr. Nenshi to the show this week where we will talk about his legacy, talk about his future, and if we're lucky, maybe even get him to talk a little shit. Mayor, welcome to the Forgotten Corner. Thanks guys, I'm thrilled to be here uh, with you this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time. I imagine that this week's been a bit of a uh, 
nonstop people like us wanting to get a piece of you since it's only a matter of days since you officially announced that you uh, won't be seeking the fourth term. Yeah, it sure has been. Uh, it's been super busy because, you know, I also have a job to do. Uh, and according to Siri, I've got, I think, 198 days left uh, and a very long to-do list. Uh, but I will tell you that it was funny when I was doing an interview with uh, the wonderful Charles Adler, a national piece in the evening. And I thought to myself, why do I feel so tired? And I realized that between first interview and last interview that day was 14 and a half hours. Holy crap. But is that, is that typical as mayor? Like I would imagine you work very long days in, in a sense are like always working, but is, yeah, is... yeah, very much so. I mean, life is different during COVID um, because so much more of it is virtual, but you know, 12 hours of solid zoom meetings uh, with no bathroom breaks is also a bit tiring, but during the, in the old days, the before times, I probably would have evening events five or six nights out of seven. And on a typical Saturday, I would probably have a minimum of five community events. And on a really busy day, like Canada Day or Neighbor Day, I could have upwards of 30. So that's a lot. Uh, but there's actually a job hidden in there uh, as well. The mayor kind of has three jobs, right? Number one is you're a legislator. So a lot of people think the mayor has a ton of executive power. You know, I really don't. I'm one of 15 votes on council, but the stuff you see in the news is all the legislative stuff, the council meetings, the agendas, the motions and all of that. So that's kind of one big part of the job. The second big part of the job is even though I'm just one member of council, I'm also sort of the executive chair of a very large and complex organization. So the second part of the job is to work with the city manager who's the CEO of the city to actually run the city, you know, 15,000 employees, that's a lot to do. And then the third piece is sort of external, which is representing Calgarians to themselves, hence all those community events, and also to the world. And that's everything from economic development missions. You know, I was in India just before uh, COVID hit. In fact, we were watching COVID rise and I thought I better come home quickly. I haven't been outside of Calgary hardly at all since then. Haven't been on a plane since then. Um, but also uh, things like making speeches about Calgary and Canada, trying to influence federal and provincial policy. And so it's kind of it's kind of a neat mix of things because it goes from you know absolutely helping with a community cleanup or a soapbox derby for the Cub Scouts in one part of Calgary, right up to you know speaking at United Nations conferences and everything in between. Now, we got lots that we want to ask you about today, like a ton. But what we do on the Forgotten Corner is we like to spend the first little bit of the show talking about the guests' um, life leading up to where they are today. I mean, we're going to talk a lot about being mayor, but we want to know a little bit about uh, your life before you came mayor. And so uh, we'd like to sit back a little bit and maybe get kind of the synopsis of... Um, how you ended up where you are today because born in Toronto to uh, Pakistani immigrants and yeah, Tanzanian Tanzanian We're yeah. African. Yes. And, yeah. And so um, tell us a little bit about your childhood and uh, how you kind of got interested into politics and, and that kind of thing. Sure. I'll back up even a little bit further. Um, so my parents uh, are, South Asian background, but uh, 
came, came from a couple of generations in East Africa and Tanzania. And in the late 1960s and early 1970s, mom and dad were living in a place called Arusha. Arusha is at the base of Mount Kilimanjaro. And it is often to this day used for lots of United Nations peace talks and um, a lot of post-conflict stuff. And the reason for that, I figured out when I finally went to visit there as an adult in 2015, is because you basically got a mountain on one side and forests full of lions on the other side. So you kind of have to stay at the peace table. You can't really walk away. And so through all of that, my parents met a bunch of Canadian aid workers. Uh, and those aid workers used to receive the Toronto Star in their diplomatic pouches, you know, weeks late. And uh, for listeners under the age of 40, that's a newspaper. A newspaper is sort of like an iPad, but it's printed on paper. And so my dad, <laughs> Um, being a voracious reader his whole life, used to ask for the newspaper when they were done with it. And so he read up and learned all about this place on the other side of the world. And in particular, he was really interested when he saw a picture of the Toronto City Hall, which was then new. And if you know that building, it's actually kind of a masterpiece of mid-century architecture, a skyscraper that curves around a central plaza. And dad had always wanted to be an architect. So he said, you know, one day I'm going to travel across the world so that I can see that city hall. And some years later, having just discovered my mother was pregnant, my dad had the opportunity to get on a plane for the first time in his life and go and represent the family at his sister's wedding in London, England. And he figured, well, since he was traveling anyway, he may as well just go to Canada. Uh, I don't think they had Google Maps then. And so he ended up with mom pregnant with me. They left my sister back home with some friends or relatives uh, and ended up in Toronto. And what followed after that, they decided to immigrate. And it was a long story of uh, sacrifice, a long story of struggle, but also a long story of success and of service. And, you know, when I was about 18 months old, I was born in Toronto. And when I was about 18 months old, uh, I did all the research, I created all the briefing books, and explained to my parents that the future was in the West. So we packed all our belongings into a little Dodge Dart, and drove across the country and ended up in Calgary. You know, after that, again, a story that feels weird, but is not weird. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, Sometimes we were poor, sometimes we were very poor. But what I had was a lot of opportunity. I graduated from excellent public schools. I explored the city on public transit. I learned to swim very badly in a public pool. And I haunted the public library on Saturday afternoons. And 38 years later, my dad, just a couple of years before he died, had the opportunity to sit in a very different city hall. He'd always wanted to see that one and he did, but now he was in a different one thousands of kilometers away and he got to see his son sworn in as mayor. And for me, although that story may sound extraordinary in its details, it is a very ordinary story. It is a very Canadian story. And that's you know really what drives me in my work to this day.
When you were growing up, learn, seeing all you talk about this now in hindsight, it, I feel like it, with all this, this understand, you know, appreciation for the public community that you lived in, were you aware, were, were you appreciative of it back then at the time, or is it more like looking back and as you or have been part of sort of the municipal uh, governance and whatnot, is it looking back and just appreciating that? Or did you always know like there's something about this community mindset that that drew you in? Oh, no, I always knew. Um, you know, when I grew up in Northeast Calgary, then and now, uh, a very ethnically diverse community, in fact, then more diverse than it is now, believe it or not, um, because there were lots of mixes of things. It's become a bit less mixed and a bit more, more monocultural um, in the years since. But, you know, and when I was, oh, I don't know, seven or eight years old, we got a huge infusion of people in my neighborhood who were a little different. They were from a place called Vietnam. And at that time, sometimes we called them the boat people. And I even recognized, even at that young age, that these folks had been through some horrific things. And now they were finally safe and they could finally invest in their own futures. And so that even at that young, young age, I knew there was something about this place that was special because remember when you grow up in a, as a first generation or in an immigrant family, you often hear stories about where we came from, right? So parents are always lecturing their kids about how good you've got it, right? How lucky you are to be here. And so that would, and, and how it's your responsibility to serve this community that's been so good to your family. And so that was drilled into me from a very young age, and it's something I've never forgot. In fact, later in life, you know, I worked um, as a management consultant with a big global firm working kind of all flying all over the world on a plane every week, um, working with the CEOs of some of the biggest companies in the world. And I lived in Toronto, but I was traveling all the time and I was working all the time. And it really occurred to me that in the whole time that I lived back in Toronto, I never felt like I had any impact other than on my own life and on my clients, obviously. But I never had any impact on my community or on the world around me. And that was actually a very big part of my decision almost 20 years ago now to come back to Calgary. You know, I was just about to turn 30. Now I'm just about to turn 50. So there's a, there's a little parallel there. Uh, and I just said, you know what? It's time for me to actually do something that is more meaningful and give back. And I want to come home. And that's really how I ended up back here. So when was that that you moved back to Calgary? August 2001, just before September 11th. Um, and uh, the reason I say that is because when I came back to Calgary, I didn't really know this is the that was the first time in my life. And we are now at the second time in my life where this has happened, where I didn't really know what I was going to do next. I sort of wanted to lock in one of the dials, which is I wanted to be based in Calgary, but I didn't really know what we, well, what else, where else I would go or what I would end up doing. And so I, you know, luckily had a young cousin moving to Toronto to set out on her own for the first time. So I just transferred the lease of my rental apartment to her with all the furniture and all the dishes and everything there, uh, packed up my books and my clothes into 48 boxes and shipped them to my parents' basement. Uh, in Calgary and came back. And then, of course, the world changed uh, after September 11th. That short, sharp recession that happened after that really messed up some of my job opportunities, but turned out to be a great thing for me. 
I started my own firm, uh, did a bunch of consulting with nonprofit and for-profit organizations. The most interesting client was the United Nations, where I was flying back and forth to New York in the post 9-11 world, um, trying to help the UN figure out how to engage corporations in improving the lives of the world's poorest people. And in the midst of all of that, an old professor of mine from the University of Calgary called me and said, I hear you're in town and I hear you're unemployed. And I said, yep, both of those things are true. <laughs> and he said, I always thought that you'd make a great professor. And one of my colleagues is going on a sabbatical. Why don't you come to this university for a semester and teach a few courses? So I did. And there's a generation of students at the University of Calgary who unfortunately had me for the two hardest courses in their undergraduate curriculum, marketing and corporate finance. Normally the same person doesn't teach both of those things, but that's just how it played out. Uh, and I got a real bug uh, for that kind of work. And while I was in New York, uh, my dad got quite sick. It was one of those, you know, come home right now moments. And on the plane on the way home, I said to myself, you know, I made a promise to Calgary that I would be based there and I would build the community there. And I'm still just flitting around all over the world. I need to deepen my roots. And so I did. And my dad obviously made it through that health scare. Uh, but I kind of decided to stay rooted a bit more. And uh, a job opportunity came up at Mount Royal University. I was lucky enough to get it. And I spent many years uh, as a professor in the business school in the field of nonprofit management. And my area in that field was around civic engagement. And in the middle of all of that, I had helped a friend write a little book about the future of Canadian cities. And that made me a bit of a pundit on the issue of cities across Canada. I did a lot of media. I ended up having a column in the Calgary Herald. But meanwhile, I was doing, and on CBC Radio. And meanwhile, though, I was doing a bunch of work in the area of civic engagement, how and why people get involved in their communities. And I learned very quickly that the number one reason that people don't volunteer in their community is not, I don't have time, or I don't have money, or I don't have the passion for it. The number one reason is nobody asked me. And so I started doing some stuff around how do you get people asked? How do you get people into the mode of service? But one of the things I discovered very quickly is that it's actually quite easy to get people to volunteer in their communities. You just have to ask them. But it's also very hard to get people involved in politics and in government for all the reasons you might expect. Uh, they're cynical. They don't believe government represents them. They don't believe that different uh, parties or different politicians are really any different from one another in terms of impact on their lives. So I made it a personal goal to get people to run for office and particularly to get people to run for municipal office because I love cities. And so I spent the better part of a year just trying to convince anybody I could find that they should consider running in the municipal election. And I struck out every time. <laughs> Not one person said yes. And I particularly struck out with women. And I always joke that I'm used to striking out with women, but this was different. Uh, women really in particular had no interest in becoming candidates because the system they felt was stacked against females. And that really bugged me. And yet everyone said to me, 
Well, you're striking out every time because there's already a great candidate for mayor. And me naively would say, well, who's that? He'd say, you, why don't you do it yourself? And I resisted so hard because I was like, look, politicians have to be good looking and charismatic and they have to like to cut ribbons and kiss babies and shake hands, never get those last two confused. And, you know, they have to enjoy all that stuff. And I'm just a nerdy professor. I like to read and talk and write. And a lot of folks said to me, listen, if you keep telling us things can be better if we elect better people, then it's your obligation to do it yourself. You can't just be a bystander in this life. You got to put your money where your mouth is. So being a strategist at heart, I said, okay, let's think about, could a nerdy lack of charisma professor who nobody knows unless they're a political nerd or reads his columns and who doesn't have any money actually launch a campaign against very well-funded, very well-known opponents to actually win. Because I wasn't interested in running so people could say, you know, thank you for elevating the level of the conversation, right? Or patting me on the head. Right. If I was going to run, I was going to run to win. And so, you know, I put, we put together the strategy, we executed on it, and hey, we went from less than 1% in the polls to almost 40% on election day, uh, six months later. So there you go. That was a very long-winded nutshell of how we got to 2010. Well, now, you ran for city council unsuccessfully in 2004, correct? I did. That was right after I finished my work at the UN and when I was starting my work on getting young people engaged in politics. So we ran a, a very quixotic campaign. Don't get me wrong. I would have loved to have won. But the goal of that campaign was to give people, young people, experience working on a campaign and kind of infect them with the bug of volunteering on politics. And we really didn't know what we were doing, uh, but we did get hundreds of young people working on their very first campaign, which was great. Um, it wasn't a successful campaign. It was a kind of a gong show open seat. And I ended up coming in fourth uh, out of, I think, 12, maybe 13. Um, and Jim Stevenson, who later became a council member, never used to tire of telling people that he was the only one who ever beat me in an election because he came in third. So basically we both did pretty lousy. And which word was that? Uh, that was in the former ward three, which doesn't look anything like the current ward three. So which words w would it be based on the current composition? Uh, it would be, uh, it, was a tr it was a very funny ward. It was shaped like an upside down triangle. So it had three different pieces of population. So it had what is currently in Ward 3, the Northern Hills communities, Country Hills, Coventry Hills, Harvest Hills, Panorama Hills. And it had all of the Northeast communities north of 64th Avenue. So your Martindale, Terradale, et cetera. And then it went all the way into the inner city and included communities like Mayland Heights and Vista Heights, which are now in Ward 10. When you so going into 2010, were did did 20 did 2004 give you any reservations about 2010, or did it just did you simply just draw on it for uh, knowing what maybe not to do or what to do better or that kind of thing? Bit of both, um, you know, because again, it was a very experimental campaign, but you do learn things, right? You learn what works and what doesn't work. 
But one of probably the biggest thing that we learned from that campaign was that it is actually difficult to gain people's, uh, catch people's imagination uh, on really big issues when you're running for a city council campaign. So even though city councillors aren't just representatives of their district, they are in fact uh, governors of the whole city. When you're running for city council, people have a lot of very local questions. What are you gonna do about this playground zone? What are you gonna do about uh, you know, this interchange? And the ideas I had were pretty big. They were big for the whole city. So in 2010, we actually had a big debate should I run for city council again, or should I just run for mayor, even though I've never been on city council? And one of the decisions we made was that my ideas were big and they needed to engage people at a big level. And in fact, I probably would be less successful running for city council than I would be running for mayor because I could catch the attention of people. There'd be more media attention. There'd be way more debates to get my ideas out. And it just was a better fit for me than uh, running for council, which is very much a ground war thing. It's all about how many doors you can get to, uh, as opposed to the mayor's race, which is about air war. How many people can you inspire? Now, there's a lot of talk about from 2010 about the social media and 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 these kinds of things being able, uh, uh, sort of vaulting you into the uh, the win. But it was like an extraordinary comeback as far as polls are concerned. Like you were, mm -hmm. you were expected to be absolutely crushed. Again, and like you said, against some names like Rick McIver, who were pretty big name people. Can like what are your in, in your thoughts? Like what how did that actually happen? Like, is that to me? I mean, there's gotta be some luck involved almost in being able to catch up that to that degree. What do you Oh no, there was there there was no luck. Attaboy. This was this was very, very disciplined strategy. And I don't mind telling you about it. Um, because some of it we wrote at the very beginning, uh, and some of it we adapted as we learned, but it was it was it was pure strategy. So when we started, we knew that we would be very, very low in the polls. People didn't know who we were. We didn't think it would be as low as we were, right? which is really like just under 1%, barely ahead of the urban chickens guy. Right. And but what was fascinating, even in that very first poll, is my conversion of people who knew who I was to people who would vote for me was incredibly high. It's like 80% of people who had heard my name were going to vote for me. Now, all of that said, only 10 people had heard my name. So we were starting very, very low. And so without getting into all the nuts and bolts of the strategy, I'll say that the most critical part of our strategy was to work all summer to build name recognition. And it was incredibly important to us. And these are in the days when there was actually, you know, much more journalism, right? And much more money for things like polling. So we knew that shortly after Labor Day, there would be a big poll and everyone would report on it because traditionally, people thought that the mayoral election started after Labor Day. And it's funny that it started so early this year. That's a result of an, an unintended consequence of new campaign finance um, uh, resol resolutions. But I announced just after Victoria Day. Barb Higgins didn't announce until August. More about her in a second. 
But I had announced at the beginning of the summer, I was a professor teaching only one spring course. So I had the summer off and I didn't have any money, but what I had was time. And so I spent the entire summer going to people where they live, you know, uh, not expecting them to come to me. So going to festivals and parks and, you know, dog parks, river walks, anywhere people found themselves in community. And I would just hand out a purple brochure and a button and talk to them. And we started gathering this enormous group of volunteers, not a lot of money then, but an enormous group of volunteers, by far more volunteers than any mayoral campaign had ever seen before that. And we dispatched them to do exactly the same thing and to start doing a lot of door knocking. I myself didn't knock on a single door that election because it was more effective for me to go to where people already were. It's more efficient use of my time. But we knocked on more than 100,000 doors. And our goal was that when we got, so it wasn't just social media, though I'll come back to social media. And our goal was that when we got to that big poll in September, we needed to be in a solid third place, not first, not second, but third. And we needed some distance between us and whoever was below us so that it looked really like a three-way race. And one of our challenges through that whole election was it was clear that Rick McIver, who has since become a good friend, would be in first place, but we had no idea who would be in second place. And we didn't want to be in second place for strategy reasons. And so, so it's for, like a horse race, you're trying to sort of like be the one sprinting at the end, or is that what you're that's exact that's exactly right. Yeah. And and you don't want to be a target. Right. And so we didn't know who was going to be in second place. And for much of the summer, we were like actually propping up other candidates. <laughs> so in debates, I would say things like, that is a great answer. <laughs> you know, but frankly, none of them were really catching fire either. And then when Barb Higgins joined the race in August, that suddenly became extremely helpful for us. She was the anchor of the six o'clock news. She was very well known. And she was able to very quickly take that second space spot. So that is what happened. Uh, after the first poll in September, we were in third place. There was a lot of daylight between us and the rest of the field. People started dropping out, endorsing others. And my very, very first political cartoon was just before the election and it was the tortoise and the hare and it was depicting Rick McIver and Barb Higgins as the tortoise and the hare um, in the race and then the the caption was don't forget the snail and I was a little snail with a little button that said turbo whipping right past both of them and that was exactly the plan so when it comes to social media um, the issue here is, as I said before, we want to go to people where they live. And at that time in 2010, we found that a lot of people, not nearly as many as now, but a lot of people lived on social media. And some people lived online in communities of interest. You know, I love Justin Bieber or whatever. But there were a lot of people who lived online in communities of political interest. And we realized that as you, as anyone listening knows, in any election, there are hyper influencers. Remember, I'm a professor of marketing, right? <laughs> and those are the people who everyone says on election day, 
I haven't really been following the election. Who should I vote for? And everyone has friends like that. And we realized that a lot of those people were living online. So we called them evangelists. And it was important to us to reach the evangelists and have them get excited about the campaign because they already knew the issues and start spreading the word. And that was something we were able to do very, very effectively because, you know, typical political wisdom says for every name in your database that you call on election day, that's probably worth two or three votes. They'll bring their spouse with them to the polls. They might talk to one or two other people. And we realized that these evangelists were probably worth two to 300 votes. So we spent a lot of time making sure they were excited about the campaign. And that's really where the social media piece came in. The rest of it was a bit brand building. You know, we had the first ever app, I think of any politician in Canada for their election, um, but it wasn't that huge a deal. It just had helped to build the brand of someone who knows what he's doing that got the evangelists very excited. Who were some of these evangelists? Oh, I mean, a lot of them are still around. A lot of them are, are still great supporters. Some of them have moved on to other, other parts of the world. But, you know, back then, hashtags were a novelty. But, you know, anyone who followed or used the YYCCC hashtag knew about me very well. I would live tweet um, contentious council meetings, which is something that was brand new then. And I would make sure that I would always answer everyone's questions um, when they had them. And that's one thing that I regret a lot, which is up until about four or five years ago, my last night before bed, really my last hour, excuse me, before I went to bed at night was answering people's questions on social media. And famously, I was the only one with the Twitter password. So if you were engaging with me on Twitter, that was actually me on my phone. And that was fun and I enjoyed talking to people. And sometimes I got a little snippy or snarky in my responses, but usually I just answer people's questions. And, uh, but I stopped, I've totally stopped because the world we're in now is someone asks me a question, why do we have green cart pickup weekly in the summer and bi-weekly in the winter? And I'll answer the question and then some troll will jump on copying the, the innocent citizen who was just asking the question with a bunch of racist and conspiracy theory and nasty nonsense. And then that person who asked the question has to be exposed to that. And that's just not worth it. And so I just stopped. And you know, famously, my campaign manager in 2010 said other campaigns use social media as a television for broadcast. We use it as a telephone for conversation. And now my social media is super boring because it just tells you when the green card schedule is changing. Um, and it's pure broadcast because it's just not worth uh, the pain that it causes to other people to have to deal with uh, all of the jerks. Was, was Carter your strategist then? Kind of. Um, he likes to think he was. Um, he, definitely, <laughs> he definitely worked on the campaign, but he wasn't the decision maker. Yeah, uh, so, he's quite the character. But I, 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 I wanted to ask. I've, with, known, I've known him for thirty years, I think. So, yeah. Um, but with regards to social media, I find that aspect really interesting because, of course, prior to your campaign in twenty ten, uh, one person, uh, 
who was known to sort of use social media to sort of catapult them to um, public office or high public office was a guy by the name Barack Obama. I've heard um, of him. Yeah, you may have. He's um, he's kind of obscure, but it's um, an interesting guy. But um, then, so, but then over the years, you see social media, as you alluded to, get sort of weaponized against you, right? The trolls and the bots and, um, you know, the disinformation and the right-wing packs who uh, seem to have a quite unique vitriol towards you, which is also what you saw in the States, right, with the Trump campaign. So I, I was wondering what, what, what your insight into that is, this sort of evolution of social media for well, being a useful organizing tool to being like a total like cesspool of, of bigotry. Well, I have a lot of reactions to that. So number one is, you know, one thing that's been really nice this week um, after I made my announcement is the enormous amount of kindness that people have shown to me and graciousness. And I delved into the social media again. And for every, you know, jerk, there's a hundred people saying nice things. So it just reminded me that we have allowed that very vocal minority, a lot of which is, as you say, not actual real people, you know, actual bots um, to take over the discourse when the vast majority of people out there are still kind, nice people. And I sure wish we could figure out a way to get to the kind, nice people. Um, and, you know, part of it is, you know, a lot of these folks, the mean folks, will say stuff you would never ever say in real life. So either they are not real people or, you know, they were raised very badly by their moms, which I don't believe, um, or they've just been, you know, um, so uh, accustomed to how awful people are online that they have lost all sense of decency or humanity. What's Brett Wilson's uh, excuse? Uh, <laughs> he, um, uh, illness, I think. Um, and I probably, I probably shouldn't say more than that. I have a lot of sympathy for him um, because someone doesn't flip like that uh, unless something is very, very wrong. Yeah, I have and, a sense uh, as to what illness he has. Solid point. I won't and, say. Uh, so, because he was he he was a friend for a long time, and now he just says the most hateful things. And you know, he and, and, really and hates sort of, you. What, like to sort of play off of that, um, let's let's never ever not about Brett, but a little bit about Brett. Let's never ever forget that this is about race. It's not just about race, but that is certainly an undercurrent of it. Would Barack Obama have gotten the same kind of vitriol had he been a white man? I don't think so. And so it's about people who are very nervous about change. And we have to figure out how to do change in a very different way in our community. It's something I hope that I'll continue to work on when I'm done here. But let's not forget that that's a very big part of it. And we've got to be able to figure out how to get beyond that. And, well, you know, when in, when in 2017, right? So in 2010, I can count on one hand the number of racist attacks I had. Starting in about 2015, 2016, pre-Trump, it started to get relentless. And so now there are every single day nonstop racist attacks. And that is completely different than the way it was before. And I still remember in the 2017 election, I actually said, this is ridiculous, folks. 
we've got to stop this. And the local media accused me of playing the race card, which is, by the way, the single most racist thing you could say to somebody, because it assumes that they are not anything but their race and that any legitimate concerns they have should be discounted because of their race. Like you, you know, can't white people, white, white people don't play the race card. Like you can't also be the mayor of Calgary, like trying to lead your city. Right. Exactly. And, um, and by the way, any person of color will tell you that the race card is never part of a winning hand. And if people are actually calling out racism, they're doing it at great personal risk to themselves. And it's taken us a long time to figure that out. And it's funny because I wrote a column uh, in the middle of Black Lives Matter and all of this about my own experience and published it in the Calgary Herald. And I was actually very critical of the Calgary Herald in that column for how they covered the 2017 election. And the columnist that I particularly singled out, I ran into a little while longer and I was just trying to be polite. And I said, I hope you didn't take that too hard, but it was an important message, right? Because she actually said to me, that was a beautiful column. And I said, I hope you didn't take that too hard. And she said, what would I take too hard? And I was like, well, that was about you. You're the one who wrote that. And she was like, I did? So there's more work left to be done. And, and you're referring to uh, Alicia Corbella, I'm I am indeed. going to guess. Yeah. Um, forgot what she wrote once. That... Well, she was the one who wrote about the race card. And right. How dare I talk about race? But I, I, I wanted to, because, you know, of course, I don't want to reduce you to your race, but at the same time, I mean, you're, you're an Ismaili Muslim. Is that how it's pronounced? Yes, that's right. It, which is a branch of Shia Islam. Which, so you're, and you're a person of color. So you're like a minority of a, a minority, minority and a minority and a minority and a minority. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so what was, what was that like? Um, I guess like growing up in Calgary, which is, you know, seen as, um, you know, cowboy central and very, um, uh, I'd say more uh, redneck than any other major Canadian city. Um, I, because I think you in some ways shattered that perception, but from, from your experience, both growing up in Calgary and uh, entering public life here, what I mean, what was your experience like in that regard? Uh, you mentioned, you know, online, but what about in person? You know, um, so I, I'm going to give you a, a nuanced answer, and I'm sorry I'm taking so much time, but this is a, I like having longer form conversations. But No, that's what we're um, here for. So on the one hand, I certainly don't believe that growing up in Calgary was any worse than growing up anywhere else. Like, you know, when I was in university, I did a summer um, program at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario. And I certainly saw far more overt racism um, in rural small town Ontario than I had ever seen in Calgary growing up. It was a program for international students, so people were from all over the world. It was an inter- excuse me, it was an international development program. I was Canadian, but it incur- it had people from all over the world, and uh, and you know I really saw a lot of that. But on the other hand, I don't want to minimize something. So you know, in this last year, in the rise of Black Lives Matter and Indigenous Lives Matter, and in the historic anti-racism hearings that we had at uh, City Council. 
I think a lot of my colleagues were very surprised by what they were hearing in terms of people's lived experience in Calgary. I was surprised, but in a different way. I was not surprised because the stories I heard of how you're treated in a store or when you go to a bar are the same stories that my friends and I had when I was young. But the thing that surprised me is I'm not young anymore. So how is it that 25 or 30 years later, things haven't changed? And so it was very difficult for me because I'm very proud of our diverse, multicultural, pluralistic society. Very proud of it. And I talk about it all over the world about Canada as the example to follow. But I had to reconcile in my mind the ability to be very proud of what we've built with our need to do better and our need to go from a place that is diverse and pluralistic and strives to not be racist to a place that is actively anti-racist. And that's hard. And it's hard to figure out what that path looks like going forward. But I'll give you an anecdote. I was speaking in the middle of all the BLM stuff. I had the chance to speak to a high school social studies class by Zoom. And we were talking, obviously, I had, they had a bunch of questions about being the mayor, but all they wanted to talk about was racism. You know, these are kids that go to one of the best public schools in the country. Their world is unlimited in front of them. But they wanted to talk about racism. And so I tried a little experiment. You know, these are 17-year-olds, 16, 17-year-olds. And so I said, how many of you have gotten your driver's license in the last little while? And it was fewer than I thought, because I guess young kids don't get their driver's licenses on their 16th birthday anymore, but some do. And so a bunch of them stuck up their hands. And so I asked some of the white kids in the class, tell me about the lecture your parents gave you when you got your driver's license. And they said, well, you know, don't speed, don't have too many friends in the car, zero tolerance for alcohol, don't text and drive. And if you get a scratch on my car, God help you. Um, and I said, great. I think we all got that lecture uh, when we got our driver's license. And I turned to the people of color and I said, did you get another lecture in addition to that one? And they said, yeah. And I said, tell me. And of course it was put your wallet somewhere where you can reach it without having to reach into anything. If you get pulled over by the police, do whatever they say. Make sure your wallet is accessible where you don't have to reach into your pocket. If they ask you to get out of the car, no matter how unjust or mean or wrong it is, don't argue with them, just get out of the car. Do not resist. We can fight later, but you have to come home alive. It's a lecture I got when I got my driver's license. And it's the one that kids, even here in Canada, get, non-white kids get. I don't think white kids get that lecture. And so it's important for us to remember that even in a place that is this diverse and this successful, we still have very differentiated ways of being. And, you know, our parents and our grandparents, these kids' grandparents, have an implicit deal that we almost never talk about explicitly. And the deal is that we put up with stuff. You know, we put up with the fact that we will get followed in the Walmart by the security guard, never mind that the security guard looks like us. We put up with the fact that bouncers at bars are gonna disrespect us. We put up with the fact that we've gotta give our kids that lecture and that we have to be much more careful in our 
uh, relationships with people in positions of authority. We put up with the fact that we always have to be better than the next person. So there's no question that I only got this job or this scholarship or this promotion because of my race. And we put up with it all because in return, we get to live here. In return, we get to live in the greatest place on earth in a place where we do have a limitless potential. And what these young people are saying right now is let's renegotiate that deal. Maybe we're not willing to put up with the extra work and the emotional labor and the microaggressions every single day of our lives. Maybe we can get beyond that all these decades later in a city where one in three people is not white. And that's a tough decision. That's a tough, tough thing for people in the majority communities to swallow. It's also a tough thing for people like me who succeeded under the terms of that deal to swallow. Uh, but that to me is the heart of this conversation about what anti-racism means. When you became like this understanding you had growing up and understand like something that the, uh, many of us in this country don't have to know growing up, did that, did that help you deal with the, the sheer fame that came after you were first elected? Like, did you expect to be as internationally embraced at the time as you were? And did you, did it, did you come into it with a sense of humility that was like, this is, you know? Oh, I mean, um, on the very last bit, my whole life, I think to myself, oh my God, is this my life, <laughs> right? Every time I walk into City Hall and my little pass card actually opens the door and guards don't come and get rid of me, I think, is this my life? Um, every single day. But I'll tell you a little story, and I know we're running short on time, um, but I'll tell you uh, okay, another quick story. One of the other strategies in that 2010 campaign of go to people where they live was literally go to people where they live. And so we had, we had a series of what we called coffee parties in people's houses. Uh, and we told people, invite anybody you know, and the candidate will show up. And so some of them, I still remember, were so funny. There was one, there was one in deep southeast Calgary. It was a young couple and dad and grandma. So only, there were only four people there. And grandma was pretty much sleeping through the entire thing in her rocking chair. But I went. And then there were some other very interesting ones. But on the Saturday night before the election, I went to my final house party, uh, a coffee party. We call them coffee parties, but there was rarely coffee at them. Um, but I went to my final coffee party, which was in a little tiny house in Ramsey, uh, probably a 700, maybe 800 square foot house. And there were easily 400 people there. And they were on the yard, they were in the neighbor's yard, they were out on the street. I kind of, if I recall correctly, we opened the windows and I made my speech from inside, but talking to outside so everybody could hear me. And it was, it was nuts. And the momentum was crazy and it's a night I'll never forget. But in the middle of, the, in the middle of all of that, the mother of the person who was throwing the party, who was herself a former Alberta MLA, got on her tiptoes because she was quite short and yelled in my ear, if you win on Monday, you're going to be really famous. What are you going to say? And I looked at her and I said, you know, I'm just focused in winning on Monday. But thank goodness she said that because at least somewhere in the back of my head, I started thinking about this. And sure enough, 
I declared at midnight on a Monday night and did my victory speech. And on Tuesday morning at 5 a.m., I did my first interview. And I suddenly found myself incredibly famous, as you say. That week, I was in Time Magazine. I was on CNN, um, Al Jazeera. And thank goodness she had said something to me because at least I had a sense of what to do. And what was fascinating about that is that nobody really cared about my great campaign then, they did later. Nobody cared about how I won against someone who had spent three times more than I did. Uh, nobody even actually, and even though I believe that I am the first non-white mayor of any large Canadian city, nobody even cared about the color of my skin. The only thing they cared about was my faith. And I had a choice to make at that point, which is, do I just wave this off because my faith was never really a big deal at all during the election? The Calgarians didn't care about it, but every, they cared about what I thought about public transit. But, you know, everyone else seems to care about my faith. So what do I do? And even then, even 11 years ago, I felt that there were these rising waves of intolerance. And it was time to start fighting them. So I said, why not take advantage of this? And why not actually start using this to tell a story of a place where pluralism really works and hope that we can influence people's thinking across the country and around the world? And in the midst of all the very kind things people have said about me this week, probably the kindest thing was when someone said, you know, Nahid took the spotlight that was shining on him and shone it on us. And to me, that's really what I was always intending on doing. And I hope that I was successful in bringing that forward. And, you know, there have been fun parts of that. Last New Year's Eve, when I would like everyone else was having a very quiet New Year's at home on Zoom, I turned over to the Times Square feed and saw my face on the billboards in Times Square, bringing greetings from Canada to the world as we ushered in 2021. And that was pretty cool because I think a lot of people who saw that would have gone, hey, that's Canada, eh? They might not have said, hey, if there weren't Canadians. Um, but huh? um, That's Canada, huh? Yeah, exactly. And so I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've been trying to do that all this time. And I hope that I've successfully uh, been able to shine that light uh, in a way that will help for, for years to come. We uh, we could talk to you for hours and you're going to you're going to cut us off soon. So we're going to try to go through some stuff really fast here. But uh, you may have just answered that for us, uh, this question for us. But have you had time to think about uh, proudest moments over the 11 years as part of your legacy? And, and what are one or two of those that um, you look back on and feel a sense of pride? Oh, there's so many of them. You know, I think of the day just after the flood when I arrived at McMahon Stadium. And we had asked people who wanted to help clean up after the flood to show up there. And we had given them very little notice. And I thought we would get 50, 60, maybe 100 people. And we got, I got there <clears throat> and there were thousands and thousands of people standing in that parking lot. And I stood up on a rickety plastic table because there was no stage. And I reached in and took the radio out of the driver's side of a fire truck so that people could hear me and uh, talked to them and looked out at them and they were young and old and some people were wearing steel toes and some people were wearing flip-flops, um, but they were all there to help. And that's what I said. I said, look, you're all here to help. 
There's way too many of you. There's not enough forms. There's not enough room on the school buses that we've chartered. But you're here to help, so just go help. Go to those neighborhoods. It should become pretty clear how you can be helpful. Just go help. And in the hundreds and in the thousands and in the tens of thousands, they went and helped. And that's when I knew that we lived in a pretty special place and that we would be okay. One other really quick story, and I wasn't yeah. here for this story, um, but I just heard it recently, but it, it was so meaningful to me. And in fact, if people look on my YouTube channel, they'll see that uh, there's a series of short films called 10 Years Together that are illustrated by the remarkable Sam Hester, who, by the way, is the homeowner of that house in Ramsey that I was talking about. She, she's also and the Sprawls uh, cartoonist colleague she of mine. Is, she, she's an old, old friend. Uh, we went to university together. So that was her house and her mom. Uh, in that story. But um, Sam has done these wonderful short films with the assistance of uh, Ryan Northcott from Media Pop Productions. And one of them tells this story. And so I'm going to tell this story, but it's so much better if you can see Sam's visuals. And it's about a woman who had a family of five, very low income, and they could never afford bus passes for everyone in the family. They could only afford one bus pass a month which they probably shared, even though you're not supposed to, or people would just ride the train without a ticket, always under fear that they would get caught. And she went to the counter at City Hall just after we passed the sliding scale for the low-income transit pass, the first in Canada. And she took $45 out of her purse and said, I'd like a bus pass, please. And the one behind the counter said, that'll be $5. And the lady went, what? she goes, well, well, there's a new scale for low-income people, so it's only $5. So the lady didn't know what to do. So she took $20 off the counter and put it back in her purse, left $25 on the counter, and said, I'll take five, please. And if you think about the difference that that little thing would have made to that family and their ability to participate and their ability to improve their lives in Calgary, you know, that's why I do what I do. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, having gone to university with uh, Sam, which uh, leads me to another one of my questions about someone else you went to school with um, who uh, we probably have to be careful what we say about because he is extremely litigious. Uh, Ezra Levant, you debated him a lot in university. What, what was, was your late? No, he was my, he was my debating partner. Um, can you imagine? We must have been a great team. Well, we were a great team. So, so, a lot you of championships. On, so you were on the same side of the debate team? Oh, I've known Ezra since we were 14 years old. Now, to be fair, I probably haven't thought about him at all in the last six or seven years. Um, I think he's about gotten you. a very, very, he's <laughs> yeah. gotten, I know, I, I think I live rent free in his head, um, <laughs> but uh, he does not live in mine. Um, Honestly, every now and then I think to myself, is he still doing that rebel thing? Is that over now? Um, they did but, get demonetized, so hopefully soon. In but in opinion. any case, um, yeah. So no, you know, uh, I, I went to I went to university at a really interesting time. It was the kind of beginning of the reform party. There was a lot of interesting stuff going on campus. So. You know, people I went to university with, and you know, I was in one class, I still remember, I was in one class, which was taught by Peter Lougheed um, at the time. And in that class were me, Ezra, Danielle Smith, Jesus. Rob Anders, wow. um, 
Marie Ratchik, who is now uh, one of Jason Kenney's closest confidants, Kevin Bosch, who works for the Liberal Prime Ministers for many years, um, and is now one of the most important lobbyists in Ottawa. So it was a really interesting political time uh, to be on campus. And then, of course, uh, my chief of staff, my former chief of staff, Chima Kemderim, uh, was not in that class, but was part of that Mayu as well. And uh, he, too, uh, has a great political career behind and ahead of him. So it was a very, I wasn't even a political science student. I was a business student. But it was a very heady time uh, to be on that campus with all those people. Oh, Anita Vandenbelt, who's now an MP in Ottawa, was also in that in that uh, cohort of people. Um, and uh, there was this grad student, but he was pretty quiet. He kept to himself. So none of us knew him very well. But he was there. He was called Harper. <laughs> uh, so it was a, it was a pretty cool time to be around. And, and what did you make of, uh, you know, all these people, um, their sort of uh, what they went on to do after for a lot of them? Was it like, well, oh, yeah, funny- that like what? what anyways, no, for, for some of them, the funny thing is the funny thing about it is that we all really got along, except for that Harper guy. He really kept to himself. But um we all really got along. And one of the things, and I never really identified with any particular party. I just kind of liked being in that mix. Uh, That's why purple is red and blue, right? Um, But- um, I thought it was because you're a Prince fan. uh, Also, um, but no, mostly because it's red and blue. But um, I did get to see Prince. uh, after I became mayor, and it's probably one of the best concerts I've ever been to. But what's your favorite Prince album? Oh, you know, obviously, come on, I'm a child of the '80s. It's Purple Rain. How how could it not be? Uh, lots of great stuff happened after that, but that was that was the the zenith. Okay. But anyway, and of course, it's Purple Rain, which when he sang that at the concert, I was like, he's singing that just for me. Um, <laughs> but uh, in any case, what was really cool back at the University of Calgary is that all of those people. Uh, all of those political parties had to share one office. And the Students Union had done that on purpose. They threw them all into the same office. So they actually had to get along. And uh, the debates in that office were ferocious, but it was actually pretty cool. Anyway, I'm not doing a good job on lightning round, so I'll get back to you for lightning round. That's okay. So now we did proudest moments. I'm just wondering if you've had a time to think of, is there anything that you might consider, I don't want to say a failure, but let's say unfinished business that you're walking away and you wish it could have, uh, you could have seen well, it go to fruition. Also, I'll give you a, I'll, I'll give you a straight up failure. Um, I still got 190 odd days to go. So ask me again. <laughs> in October about unfinished business because I got a lot of work to finish but I'll tell you about a straight-up failure which was the whole debacle around the Olympics Um, much of that had to do with you know very bad management of this file by the then provincial and federal governments uh, which is very very different than how Vancouver went through their process you know um, rather than support we got constant conflict and fighting from them But also, uh, you know, I should have played that better. I wanted to respect the fact that there was a plebiscite and I didn't want to be too, too advocating one side or the other because people had to decide. But um, I should have. I should have much better explained to people what the costs and benefits of it are because we're in a position right now where we're going to have to spend a ton of money, maybe a half a billion dollars, on refurbishing our legacy athletic assets in the city and we don't get the Olympics at the end of it. Um, and so I really wish we had managed, I had managed that personally much better. 
you've worked for three or not for three, you've worked under three different uh, parties as provincial governments, PCs, NDP, UCP. We were going to get six into premiers. A- Six pre, well, a bunch of those under just the PCs, right? Yeah, we, I think four. Yeah. Right? I guess four, the question is, we, were, we wanted to talk a little bit more in depth about those experiences, but I guess my question lightning round style would be, which which was the sort of easiest to get along with or easiest to work with, and which is the worst, and why is it the UCP? Um, it's not actually the UCP. Um no, uh, normally I wouldn't answer that question, but what the heck, I'm towards the end here. Um, the easiest was the first one with Ed Stelmack. Um, he was a wonderful man, is a wonderful man, and really um, had a lot of time for the city. We didn't always get what we needed out of him, but would always be very willing to have a discussion. The second best was Dave Hancock, who was only there for a little while, um, because he too had similar points of view. Uh, all the other ones have been challenging in their own ways. One last question, because um, I know you got to go, but uh, you talked about, you know, the sort of purple revolution um, you were bringing about, not conservative, not liberal, but there is a common conception, at least, that you are uh, a bit to the left on the political spectrum that you would uh, you know, uh, Doug Schweitzer, of course, uh, disparagingly uh, referred to as Trudeau's mayor. And, um, you know, you, you for the most part, uh, seem to have worked quite well with the New Democrats. Um, where do you think that perception comes from? And look, part, part of it is race. Let's be honest. Part of it is a big conversation because I believe in dignity of every human being. And I believe that we should be looking after the more vulnerable in our community. But I think it's worth reminding people uh, as well that we have the lowest taxes in Canada and Calgary. Uh, It's worth reminding people that we're the only city in the country that actually was able to reduce our taxes during COVID. Uh, by finding more efficiencies. It's worth reminding people that we have uh, reduced the city budget by a billion dollars while still providing uh, the services that we need to provide to citizens and keeping their satisfaction high. And so fiscally, you know, I got, I, I, I'm very proud of that fiscal record. Uh, it's certainly better than the fiscal record of any so-called conservative provincial government uh, in here. Um, but at the same time, I am never going to give up my fight for dignity and opportunity for everybody. So I think that, you know, I'm lucky in that uh, I get called regularly a communist and a fascist on the same day. Uh, So uh, if if people actually know what those words mean, I think a lot of people on social media don't know what those words mean. But if people actually know what those words mean, uh, then that means I'm probably doing something right. But would, would you not consider yourself like a small L liberal? I would consider myself a small L liberal, absolutely, in terms of uh, making sure that liberal values about the dignity of each person are upheld. Uh, And I hate, hate, hate wasting money. You can't grow up poor and be profligate. Uh, You got to uh, you got to spend every single penny wisely, which I guess makes me a small seat conservative. I just think it makes me smart. Should should mean I, two really quick ones. Should municipalities be worried because there is a lot of talk about 
the sort of costs coming from the provincial government being downloaded onto municipalities over the next little while. Should You're leaving at a time where I feel personally that municipal governing is going to be really hard in Alberta. Should, should municipalities so, be worried? Small municipalities should be worried. Um, Calgary stands on its own two feet. The subsidies we get from the provincial government are pretty small. And they're largely in social services, a little tiny bit for the library and about 10% of our policing budget. Um, so those are areas that we should be concerned about, but I think the province would be very, very, very wrong to go after those areas uh, more than they already have. Um, they would also be very wrong to go after capital funding because we're gonna need infrastructure stimulus. Look at Joe Biden spending $2 trillion in the US in order to get us out of this pandemic and municipalities know how to spend that money better than anybody else. So yeah, people do need to be a bit worried, but by and large, uh, there are other things to worry about on the provincial scale. And I don't mind telling you the school curriculum scares me a lot. Uh, and it's something that I will oppose. Uh, we've got to get out of the COVID pandemic and I'll support the government in many ways. And I won't support them in some ways uh, in terms of what they are doing. But I do want to say that leaving at this moment for me, like I said, I've got 190 odd days left. And my goal is that things will look much better in October than they look now. And we will be able to get out of the pandemic. We will be able to resolve a number of outstanding issues so that the new, and, th and that's why this made sense as a moment to step away, so that the new mayor and the new council will actually have a clean slate in front of them. We will have solved a bunch of problems. We will, been a, we will be in a period of creativity of creating a newer and stronger community after the pandemic. And that's a real opportunity for that new council to do that. Now we'd be, we can't let you go before, if we don't ask one question, everyone's going to want us to ask you. And that's sort of what comes next. Have you thought about uh, what you're going to do when you're done as in which political party are you going to join? And why is it the federal liberals? <laughs> um, I literally have no idea. Um, and I told you my life story. Oh gosh, more than an hour ago. I really have taken a lot of your time today. No, no, we taken um, years. Appreciate it too. But um, you know that one point in my life, twenty years ago, where I came to Calgary and said, "I don't know what I'm going to do." I'm right there now again, and that's hard for me because I pride myself in being a planner and a strategist, um, and always knowing kind of three or four moves ahead on the game board. But right now, I'm just opening myself up to the world, opening myself up to possibility. I have a couple of criteria. Number one is I still want to be a part of the story somehow. I want to be a part of Calgary's story going forward and Canada's story going forward. And number two is I want to find a way to serve. And uh, right now, at this point in my life, that'll probably be outside of politics, outside of elected office. Uh, and I think there will be lots of opportunities uh, to do that in a way that I hope can be meaningful. But the most important thing, and I've said this in interviews this week, is that I am told that this has been a particularly good decade for television. So I've got 10 years of TV to catch up on. Um, I understand Game of Thrones or something is supposed to be good. It ends, it's a little eh at the end, but it's it's a good ride for six or seven seasons anyway. I, I, I would recommend Mad Men, personally. How about The Wire? Someone told me to start with The Wire. Oh my yeah. God, Moe's Mo, vibrating on the other end of this. He's going <laughs> to turn his camera on just to be like, oh my God, did somebody say The Wire? 
<laughs> anyway, um, I will tell you that over COVID, I have been able to watch a little more TV. And I did watch The Good Place, which I enjoyed very much. Isn't it? It's really a cute show, actually. I, I Beginning watched that to too. end, I really yeah. loved it. Me but too. then getting on my Ted Danson shtick, my big recommend, well, I have two big recommendations. Uh, one of them is a show called Transplants, which is like just a medical drama about a Syrian refugee who becomes a doctor in Toronto, but it's so Canada. It's so good. It's so well-written. It must be watched. But the other, continuing my Ted Danson kick, is his new show, Mr. Mayor, where he is the mayor of Los Angeles. Tina Fey is the executive producer and writer. And it is, it's just out now, only nine episodes. And it is so ridiculous and so absurd and 100% true. (laughs) <laughs> every crazy crazy situation he goes through you just take off the part that makes it funny and that is a day in my life veep is another show you may like i have watched veep i've watched veep oh, you have. I, because they used to have it on the plane so i would watch it on the airplane and so i managed to finish it yeah jonah ryan's uh presidential campaign reminds me of a certain uh city councilor's uh mayoral campaign <laughs> We'll see how things play out. Anyway, thank you so much, guys. It's really been a pleasure. Thank well, you. Yeah, thank and you. And you, you have time. to come back because uh, we have a lot. Yeah, we did the first half. So like yeah. once in 190 some days when you're <laughs> finished and you're able to like really get candid, you got to promise to come back on the show for a full hour, another full hour to talk. more. Okay, deal. Yeah, I want to ask you about Uber and um, some other things. Yeah, being juxtaposed with Rob Ford. I mean, come oh, on. There's yeah. so many good. There's so many good topics. Look, I, I, I'll tell you this years. much to end it to end it off. Since it's a podcast, we can be yes. spicy. One mm-hmm. of the things is that I I'm a guy who never swears. It's just one of my quirks in life. I don't just use cuss words. So what I called the founder of Uber is probably the meanest thing I've ever said about anybody. Which is, as you may recall, I called him kind of a dick. <laughs> and, only kind of a dick, like and let's just say given his trajectory in life was i wrong hell no yeah <laughs> um yeah no i think you said what a lot of people were thinking but um <laughs> you know didn't didn't have like the public platform to say so anyway thanks well, very listen, much guys thanks thank for keeping you. the conversation well, going and listen mayor we really appreciate it you've been you've been the mayor of calgary for as long as i've been uh, a member of the medicine hat news so for my entire career sitting at that desk i've been uh, following your career isn't that funny and you uh, must have been like 14 when you started oh yeah yeah <laughs> I, i'm closer to your age than you think my friend only about five years behind you oh wow. no, mo was the probably 14 mo, yeah mo at that was time. A, wee, a wee lad but listen Thank you so much for coming on. And again, like uh, we wish you the best. We wish you all the luck and the, and, and the prosperity and all the fun and relaxation, I think is maybe the, on the top of the list that you've uh, earned for when this is all over. But um, good luck for these last 190 days and uh, don't be a stranger. Thank you so much. Take good care. I'll Thanks see you at friend. the council yep. chambers. Take you care. Bet. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, my friends, this is the time in the show where we say uh, a little something to those of our patrons who go above and beyond for anything we could ever expect. So to Nancy Niles, to Chris Derwold, to Dave Bonmiller, to the Big Red Machine, 
you guys keep us going. Could not uh, could not do it without you. To the rest of our patrons, we really appreciate the support. To our listeners, share, hit five star reviews. Anything helps. Um, like we said, we were hoping to get in a lot more today. Um, but sometimes when you have a podcast in a certain amount of time and you get somebody on that, you have so many things you want to talk about. It's impossible to get to all the things, but. We felt it was really important that we gave uh, Mr. Nenshi some time to talk about himself a little bit and and what what his experience was like. He's going to spend the next 190 days talking about uh, the policy decisions and answering to his successes and failures. And so we hope we offered you something a little different than that. Um, and uh, maybe in about seven months or eight months we can get him to come back on the show and we'll do some more shit talking jerome yeah, i think i think that was an all-timer yeah that's it was, my that was good it, i appreciate like opinion. it was really it was really good to have him on and uh like you know we we probably should have skipped past some of the you know to get to some of the more juicy stuff but we like i don't know I, the thing i like about the show is we like talking to people about their life and where it goes, it goes. And, you know, you might, ex you might come to the show expecting us to like be straight journalistic and hammer them on all the issues, but I don't know, that's not what podcasts are about. And uh, I hope we bring a little something different with each guest. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I mean, if, Next time, um, we'll, I think, uh, maybe uh, not grill him more, but definitely um, well, I, yeah. ask uh, about some uh, I'd like to know positions position he took K yeah, or uh, positions he reversed, um, like uh, the arena deal. Yeah, right. I mean, there's lots of things that, like I said, there are a lot of things that happened over 11 years and uh, that he, you know, promises made promises kept or whatever you know promises broken these kinds of things that happen to every politician when they get in and they have big eyes and and sometimes it doesn't work out and they they see the bureaucracy and all of these things and we could we'd love to have them back on to be able to hammer some of those details out but like i said i i enjoyed chatting with the man about um just him as a man and what it's been like to be you know the mayor and the most famous mayor in the world at one point and second most certainly the second most famous canadian mayor ever right and the only reason he wasn't number one is because of the buffet that rob ford had waiting for him at home he doesn't smoke crack though <laughs> we didn't ask that's true if we have if we have mr nenshi on again we will definitely ask if he's uh smoked crack with any of his constituents but i'm gonna guess i'm gonna go <laughs> yeah. on a limb and say i think the answer is no yeah but it would be cool ah, anyways anyway we also have some other good episodes like some extremely good episodes coming up on this show so um to our listeners thank you we're trying to bring you guys um candid unique conversations with people that you uh know and want to hear from and uh i think if i i, I hate previewing it because then like things fall through and you never know but our guest for next week is if it wasn't for, she's gonna be it's gonna excite people yeah Let's you're gonna you're that. gonna love it if when everything gets all hammered out we'll let you guys know but our guests you are gonna love who we are having on next week and uh 
So for this week, I'll say thank you to Mr. Nenshi again for being on. Thank you to Mo for sitting there for an hour and a half and uh, knowing that he's going to go through all of this right now. And uh, Jerome, it was good to see your face that I never get to see again. You see my face every week. Once a, once a week. It's not the same. I you know? know. I know. Uh, when um, COVID is, uh, dies down, I definitely want to come down to visit the forgotten corner and yeah. maybe we can, we can do a recording in real life. Like by 2023, for sure. We're going to do a podcast from the same room. Like we have, yeah. it's never yeah. been done. We started in a pandemic. We're still in a pandemic. Jesus Christ. That's another thing I should say before we go, do you know that next week, next week's episode. And it just so happens that we happen to book one of our, um, biggest guests yet for next week but next week is our one year anniversary our first episode was released on the 24th of april i think and so we record seven or whatever it was but we record next week on the 17th and that episode will be out as our one week or one year anniversary so pretty impressive that we've had one one saturday one week that we didn't release an episode in this entire 52 week year of our first year. So not bad during a pandemic and people moving and jobs changing and trying to book guests while we work and all of these things. So hope you guys have enjoyed the program and I think we're getting better at doing it. So I'm glad we didn't have Mr. Nenshi I, I sure on the hope show in the first better. couple of, in the first couple of months. So to our guests that toughed through that, like Shannon Phillips and uh, Jillian Ratty and these those were of, good episodes. Though. Oh, I think those episodes, stand the test of time. Th those were the ones where we immediately, like we learned very quickly that you just don't, you don't handle all the talking. Like you have a guest on, ask them a question and then shut the, you know what up and let them talk. And that's how you get a good show. So anyway, let's get out of here. Appreciate you guys. Love doing this show. Can't wait to do next week's. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.